Well, hello again, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Two Ways News. I'm Tony Payne. And I'm Philip Jensen. And from the sound of that Philip Jensen, the slightly muffled sound, Philip, it almost sounds like you're not in the room with me. Well, to tell you the truth, I'm not in the room with you. No, I'm uh, down at Ostenmere in the beautiful south part of uh, Wollongong. Well, well, north part of Wollongong, south of Sydney. Well, it's lovely that we can talk, even if it's um, via Zoom. And so, um, dear friends, I hope the audio all works well in this way of doing it. I'm, we're doing our best, and let's hope that it's it's of adequate quality. Uh, Philip, there's lots of stuff we can talk about today. We've had quite a few questions come in in relation to our discussion um, just a couple of weeks ago about pastors and overseers and elders and all that kind of thing, uh, got people talking and raising a number of interesting issues. I'm not sure we can deal with all of them, but let's have a crack at some of them at least. Good. So there were a number of questions that responded to what we were saying by asking, well, what do we think about particular forms of Christian polity then? Are we, in what we were saying, really seeking to defend, you know, the Anglican version of, of church governance with the bishops, priests and deacons and so on? Uh, or in fact, as one person said, can anything be said to defend the Anglican version from the Bible? <laughs> or must we have a plurality of elders uh, as per the more reformed and reformed Baptist kind of version? How do we respond to these different forms of polity? And how does what we were saying about the terminology of overseers and elders and so on relate to this? Well, certainly, never my intention, and I don't know about your intention, because that's what's on our hearts, but it's never my intention to be thinking through these issues by defending any polity. Uh, that, that has been the problem down the centuries, people defending what they have or what they think is the right way or their tribe, and so I flatly refuse to defend the Anglican version. Uh, I'm seeking to find out what the Scripture says. Well, if the Scripture says what the Anglican version says, I'll be frankly surprised. But if it did, well, then so be it. But I don't think it does uh, any more than I think it says any other particular version that we see available because I don't think the polity is the important part of Christian or biblical understanding of ministry. Uh, how we organize our annual meetings, how we structure our organization is not seeming to me an important issue within the New Testament. That we are godly, loving, that we are faithful to the gospel, that we represent it in our lives and the way in which we live and teach these are critically important issues to which the scripture is addressing. The particulars of whether we call this office bearer by this title or that title seems to be not what the scripture is talking about. In my experience of it, the, the kind of structure that you bring to the scripture very often, perhaps coincidentally, uh, tends to conform with the kind of structure you read out of Scripture. It seems to me that the the sort of assumptions of our traditions kind of can lead us to read the evidence in a certain way, uh, and really the evidence for exactly which kind of polity is the biblical one just seems to be very thin to me. There's 
there's a lot of evidence for the kind of things we were talking about last week. That is, what do elders who've been appointed as overseers, what is the nature of their function and task and how does it fit with the overall function of a congregation? There's, there's lots about that. But trying to figure out exactly who should be elected and how they should be appointed, whether they should be appointed or elected, uh, these things are very difficult to, to determine given the paucity of what the New Testament actually says about them. Exactly. But there are some things you can rule out. So the idea that um, the minister or ordained person or whatever you're going to call them of the New Testament is the same as the priests, the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament is wrong. And so to establish a priesthood in the New Testament um, along the lines of temple worship is a failure to understand the great high priest of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we really do need to be able to say there are certain structures uh, that are wrong, but there are many other structures which are not wrong. Um, they're not taught. They're not... Uh, they're not inconsistent with the scriptures, um, but they are not the teaching of scripture either. I think people sometimes miss that distinction that there can be quite legitimate and reasonable ways of organising ourselves. Uh, and if we take the Anglican system where you have uh, an elder or a pastor, we call them a presbyter who's given charge of a congregation along with various assistants working alongside with a system of lay involvement and so on as well. Uh, with some officials and organisers who sit over that, that we call overseers who work between churches, um, that this is a, a reasonable and good way to organise ourselves, even if it's not a structure that you can read directly off scripture. Uh, but likewise, to have a set of elders who are elected within a congregation and who take major responsibility for a congregation, one of whom may be the main elder or teaching elder or pastor, this is also a, a fairly similar in many ways and reasonable way of organising ourselves. But I almost want to say, so long as you're willing to recognise that no one pattern can be established as the biblical one, I'm happy with quite a number of different patterns. Yes, that's right. The deacon is a word which means quite different things in different denominations. It does occur in the New Testament. Not often, I may say. I mean, it's in Philippians 1, it's in 1 Timothy 3. But it's not a very common uh, phrase. But when you translate it, what is meant by the reader, um, here's where dynamic equivalence is very helpful as a, an analysis of how to translate things, because one reader will hear the word deacon and think that's an ordained paid minister. Another person will hear deacon and think, no, that's a, a lay person who's like the secretary of the elders. And there's just different denominational history associated with these words, none of which I suspect is caught up in the meaning of the word deacon in the New Testament. That was actually one of the other questions that somebody raised, and we probably won't go into that now just because it's a more complex one and it's worth us coming back to, and that is the meaning of the word diakonia or diakonos, uh, deacon, minister, servant in the New Testament. Um, a couple of people got in touch to say, uh, that the meaning of that word, a lot of work has gone in in recent decades 
into what that word means. And it's become reasonably well established that the word ministry that we often use to translate that, the word deacon or diakonos in the New Testament, has more to do with an agency or a go-between or an intermediary as a form of service and not just a general form of service. And a couple of people wrote to say, could we talk about that? Um, I think we should come back to it and talk about it. We won't talk about it today, but it's a good example of how we can read back into the New Testament what we see and think by word and kind of miss sometimes perhaps what was going on at the time. Yes, it's interesting, Tony, isn't it, that the word is translated servant service pretty well throughout the New Testament except in those couple of occasions when it's associated with church, uh, like Philippians 1, and then it's not translated, it's transliterated. You just turn the Greek letters into English letters as if that now is the meaning of the word. When I'm always worried when you just have transliterations because what you're saying is, I don't know what the word means, but it sounds like this, rather than what it does mean. And yet, in all kinds of other places, it's given this word service, which, uh, as you say, a recent scholarship has put big questions over as to the precise nature of that service. So, yes, that's a good discussion to have some other time. Maybe, maybe we bring Lionel Windsor in to give us some expertise and help. That would be an excellent thought. He's he's well above our pay grade on all these kind of issues and, and has done some really good work on, on the meaning of ministry uh, and of diaconia. Um, two other quick things, Philip, two other quick questions. Maybe they're not quick questions. Um, a couple of people wrote in to ask, what does all this mean, the different words we use to describe things and thinking, in a sense, more functionally about... Uh, the roles of ministry leadership in the New Testament. What does this all mean for women in ministry and for women who are involved in different levels in church life as leaders and uh, and so on? What should we call them? Does it change the way we think about that issue? Well, it does when we we when we think the structure and the organisational the appointment uh, is the fundamental of ministry. Then we start asking questions. Well. You know, what about people of a certain age or, or what about that? What do we do with in terms of women and their activity in Christian ministry? I, I'm very much more engaged or concerned that our sisters are actively promoting the Lord Jesus Christ and teaching his word than working out what title to be giving them because I'm not really interested in the title we give to men. I, I think when we think like the world does, we think organisational power, structure, is the essence of Christian ministry. When faithfulness to the word of God and love to the people that you are serving is what the faithfulness of Christian ministry is. And the more people aspire to an office instead of aspiring to a task, the more they've missed the point of being a servant like the Lord Jesus. Yes, that's very helpful. We do so easily flip to the institutional and the power structure in particular, and whether I'm gaining the rights that I need to have or whether I'm suppressing the rights of some that I need to exclude rather than thinking about the function of ministry and of service. That's that's a useful thing to say. There's a lot more to say, of course, on that question, and you may want to come back to us, dear listeners, on, on that one. Uh, Philip, we might move on from these different questions and 
Uh, dear listeners, we've hopefully said something that's been helpful on those issues, but no doubt raised more things and do keep asking questions. And we'll certainly come back to that question about ministry uh, and the meaning of that word at some future point. Um, I should also say at this point, you may occasionally during this recording hear a bit of background music. Now, this is not because we've decided to have background music running along these days under our podcast. It's that I'm recording this at home and my wife's a piano teacher. So you might be hearing um, one of her little students beating away on the piano as we go along. So if I, if so, I do hope you enjoy it. Uh, <laughs> Philip, we, let's move on to today's main topic. And it's funny we're talking about structure and organisation so much in church. Uh, you were suggesting we should talk about organised religion. And this is because... You keep hearing, and as soon as you mentioned it, I confess I have heard this many times as well. There's a kind of a, a response to Christianity or a rejection of Christianity these days that says, yeah, I, I don't mind Jesus so much. And actually, I think Christian values and, and Christian heritage is important in our culture. But of course, I, I, I'm not into organized religion. Of course, I reject that entirely. Why do people say this, that they're against organized religion? It, it's an interesting conundrum of the way they're saying it, isn't it? Because they are not part of the atheist brigade. Um, sometimes the atheist brigade will say it too. But it's one of those ways of, well, it's like when people say, you know, I think there's been too much uh, too much alcohol consumption, too much gambling. Mind you, I'm not a wowser. It's not against having a drink. You know, it's, it's somehow I've got to qualify myself as not being one of those people while I agree with those people. And so, yes, I'm spiritual, but I'm not part of organised religion. And so organised religion is an evil that we all agree. That's an evil, but we mustn't be in organised religion. And as I hear them saying it, I want to think, well, what's the alternative to organised religion? And, And I've got two choices that I really wanted to try out with people. I want to say, which would you prefer? A disorganised religion or unorganised religion? Because they're the alternative to organised religion, it would seem to me. What's the difference? Tell us what the difference between disorganised religion and unorganised religion is. You tell me what's the difference between disorganised (laughs) and unorganised. Well, um, when I looked it up in the uh, shorter Oxford Dictionary not long ago, it clarified for me that something that's unorganised has never been organised in the first place. It's it's a, just a group of random elements without any organisation. But if something is disorganised, it once had some organisation, it once was an organic whole, but now it's been, that order has been disordered and destroyed. It's now disorganised. Yes. So there's your options, disorganised or unorganised. Yes. But of course, in me asking the person that question, I'm, I'm really just trying to throw dust in the air. I'm really trying to say the adjective organised doesn't help you in the slightest. All right? It's it's a it's a phony adjective, really. It it sounds like it's making a point, but your objection really is to religion. Right? No one wants religion that is unorganised or disorganised. What is it that you have when you have unorganised religion? You may want it, but what you then are wanting is individualism. I want religion to be for me, not organised with anybody else. If it was, I want it now disorganised so that I can just be myself and do my own thing purely on my own 
with or without God, well, with the God that I believe or with God doing what I want him to do. And the more you think about that kind of individualism, the more you realise it's called sin in the Bible. You know, I, I want God to be at my beck and call my way. It, it's, it's also got to do with a rejection of the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible actually is a relational God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who creates us in his image and who by his Spirit regenerates us so that we call him Father and call each other brothers and sisters. Because the God of the Bible, being a relational God, brings us away from that kind of individualism into the kind of family of love. And so to what is it that they want when they want unorganized or disorganized religion? They don't want religion and or they don't want the religion of the Bible is what they're really saying. I think so. They're saying they don't want any formal structure or um, collection of, of belief or doctrine or truth that they are required to subscribe to or any form of activity or body of people or organized kind of gathering of people that they might be required to identify with or attend or be part of. I want a religion, a spirituality that is not only makes no demands from outside on me in terms of belief of particular doctrines, but which I'm then free to interpret and practice in entirely my own way. Yes, but I, that's what they're saying. I'm not sure that's what they mean. Right. What do you think they mean? I, I suspect what they mean is I, I don't want to align myself with religious wars of yesteryear or with the Spanish Inquisition or with with the fights between the Protestants and Catholics in Ireland. They, they look back because the narrative of our society, of our secularism, uh, they look back to when Christians have been involved in the politics of this world, like the religious right in America, and they have made a mess of things. And so I'm happy to be religious and Christian in the sense of accepting Jesus but I don't want to have anything to do with those people who are involved in the political machinations um, of evil that have come from the Crusades and things like that. And it can also have to do with their particular experience of religion in their upbringing and their particular culture. So it could be that, mm. say, they've mm. grown up in a, a culture where Russian Orthodox religion is what they um, associate as religion and all they've ever seen of the religious organized structures of society as is ritual, um, formalism, um, corruption of various kinds, greed, support of the state, whatever it might be, they might associate it with the particular religious structures they grew up with and they don't really want anything to do with those and speaking personally I can understand why I particularly wouldn't want to have anything to do with those either so they see religion as a certain form of ritual formality and often a corrupt or greedy form of organisation and don't want to have anything to do with that either. Yes. In a previous generation, I don't know how long ago I'm thinking of, middle of the 20th century, uh, when people as a society, as Australian society was in a sense pro-religion, um, 
we evangelicals were very keen to point out that we weren't religious. Yeah. So there's a very famous book published, and I don't know when, um, called uh, uh, How to Be Christian Without Being Religious. And that was an, a, a right and proper thing to say because there were so many people who were religious but actually weren't Christian. However, in an irreligious society like ours today, that book doesn't help us in the slightest because people are very happy to be Christian without religious because that means I can just do my own thing. It's like we used to say, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Well, that's the surest advertisement I know to make sure no one goes to church. But in an age of nominalism where it was thought all you have to do to be a Christian is to go to church, it was yes. a reasonable thing to point out. Yes, that's right. We, we, we massively have moved away from that and will continue to move away from it. But now we're in the situation where people are actually saying, well, I am Christian, but I don't have to go to church. I am Christian, but I don't want to be religious. But of course, when you ask what kind of Christian it is, it never actually is consistent with what an organised religion would teach them. Uh, see, if you, if you never go to church, you never hear the Bible being taught. You never, most likely never actually hear it being read when you ask people about these, those who, you know, religious but don't, uh, sorry, Christian but or spiritual that don't go to church. How many times have you read the Bible lately? What are you reading in the Bible, etc.? The answer is nothing. But it's also a failure. Well, you're right, is it, that there are people who have experienced bad things in churches. It, it's a failure to see the terrific things that are there in organised religion. That organised religion is a good thing, not a bad thing, a helpful thing, not a bad thing. Yes, it has blemishes like any organisation does, but the, your, your local average church is a gathering of all kinds of people, all manner of people who relate to each other with a fair degree of, in my experience, of care and concern, of looking after each other's welfare. Um, we, we volunteer for labour with each other. I mean, our, our membership doesn't require any particular level of giving. You're invited to give as you see fit. Try and run a taxation system on that basis. Try and run a golf club that way. Try and run a, a bowls club that way. Try and run any club where you don't have membership fees. You just have, be generous. And out of that, we're able to maintain the ministries of churches around the world out of just sheer generosity. The, the Harvard scholar, Mr. Putman, he and his colleagues were talking about integration with peoples and found that when people are similar to each other racially, ethnically, uh, there's a fair degree of trust. But when they are diverse in their ethnicity and racial backgrounds, etc., then there's a greater degree of distrust, not only between the races, but also within the races. That in a in a mixed community White people don't trust white people and black people don't trust black people. And this was a uniform finding across the states. And for someone like Mr. Putman, who's a very interesting scholar and one who's 
of liberal persuasion a very great disappointment because they thought integrating communities would increase trust across the community, but it's the exact reverse. However, they noticed that one exception to the rule was large evangelical churches. Because there's a group of people, very diverse, who have a heightened level of trust. You see, organised religion does good things. Would it be fair to say that organised evangelicalism does all kinds of good things then? Yes. (laughs) There's hardly any social amelioration, social organisations set up to help the poor and the weak that haven't got Christian foundations and very often evangelical foundations. The Red Cross, I mean, if you look at their literature now, they're embarrassed by the fact that they were started by Christians. Bernardo's Homes. Dr. Bernardo is an evangelical Christian, but you read Bernardo's uh, literature today, you hardly notice that. The YMCA, the YWCA, hey, they still have the C in them, but you'd not, not guess it necessarily from their organisational literature. Um, the City City Mission, the it just goes on and on. The, the oldest relief organisation in Australia, the Benevolent Society, was founded by Christians. They've moved beyond limiting it to Christians because they're concerned for humanity. But over and over again, things that have been set up for the poor, hospitals, schools, even universities, have Christian foundations built into them. We're the people who, through our organisation, have sought to alleviate the sufferings and miseries of the world's populations, not just of Christians' suffering, but of the world's sufferings. And yet you say we don't want organised religion because... Why are they saying it? It's not because of facts. They're saying it in the end for the fundamental reason that you mentioned earlier. We don't want to have our lives, in a sense, organised by somebody else. We don't want to listen to the claims of another on us, whether that person be God who created us and has redeemed us, or the people around us that need our love and care and our attention. Uh, I want to avoid organisation. I want to avoid the claims of of an organized, vibrant, vital Christianity uh, because of my selfishness, fundamentally, surely. It comes back to sin. Yes. And so more and more of the public intellectuals, I don't know what else you call them, uh, like Louise Perry and Tom Holland or or um, Constantine Chris, uh, who are speaking openly and clearly about the facts of of Christianity and its beneficial effect on society are embarrassed about the fact that it comes from Christianity. They, they see the benefits of marriage. They see the benefits of, of making vows and promises in marriage. They see the, the change. I mean, Tom Holland is very strong in seeing the, the value system of suffering and of care, of looking after people, etc., but he knows that it comes from Christianity. It doesn't come from, well, it'll never come from Frederick Nietzsche, will it? It doesn't come from atheism. It comes out of Christianity. So they want the fruit without the root. It's not just the content of the Christian value system, 
it's the motivation to get people to produce that fruit that comes out of true religion. But true religion, if it's not relational, it's not true. And if it is relational, it's better to be organised than disorganised or unorganised. It's The adjective is a nonsense. What they're saying is they want their own thing while pretending to have God. So, Philip, just to round off, if someone in conversation raised this question with you, we've heard this talked about in podcasts and you've mentioned people who, like Louise Perry and so on and Tom Holland, who might disavow organised religion, but what about the friend who we're chatting to who says, look, yes, I... I'm not against Jesus, I guess, and I, I get that spirituality is important, but it's just organised religion I'm against. What would you say to that person? How would you respond? Well, there's lots of ways you can. One of the ones I've tried in the past is to say, look, you're right, the church is full of hypocrites. Well, it's not really full of hypocrites, actually. There's there's a few spare seats. Why don't you come and join us? <laughs> <laughs> we are, we're the only organisation I know where to be a member, you've got to admit that you're immoral. You've got to admit that you're a sinner. One of the first things you do when you come in is you confess that you are sinful. You know, to join a golf club, you've got to get people saying that you're good and moral and not sinful. To be a lawyer, you've got to get people professing that you are a moral, upright person without sin. A lawyer, can you believe it? But to be a Christian... No, you've got to admit that you actually are sinful and that you're dealing with reality, with the truth of your life. So when people say, well, you know, I, I like God, but I'm not sure about joining a church, you want to say, well, why? What's wrong with the church? Full of hypocrites? Yes. It, no, it's not full. We've got room for you. You come and join us. Well, you were saying you had a couple of responses. There's one, kind of get under people's skin and call them out. What's the other one? Well, one of the ones is to be asking them for, well, what is it that has happened in your life that makes you negative about it? Because you're right, Tony, there are sometimes people were in church or their father was in church and the, the council member of the church, the Sunday school teacher or somebody actually uh, ripped them off in a financial deal and things like that. And so you need to be able to draw people out to tell you what the problem is and then to point out, yeah, well, that is bad to sympathise with them when it is right to sympathise, empathise with them when it's right to empathise. But to point out that just because one person has done a bad thing in an organisation does not make the organisation bad. And the fact that on the wider scale, there's terrific benefits in being in church and your experience is different. And anyway, why don't you come to my church and I'll make sure this kind of thing's not going to happen again to you in the context. I mean, I can use arguments like Duke University, the medical faculty, has done a lot of study on religion and health. And they've discovered that people who are active in organised religion uh, are healthier, have less depression, uh, they live longer, they live happier. You, know, you want to wealth and flourish, then being in organised religion is the way forward. But ultimately, you see... We want people in organised religion because they're converted as Christians, not because of the benefits. That is still the problem of having the fruit without having the root. But I do need to try and show that this root does produce that fruit. 
rather than this root produces nothing worth having. This root actually does produce it in a, in a way that can be investigated scientifically by a university and in a way in which I can give personal testimony in my own life. I think that's important because many people, and I can think of people who've come to uh, put their faith in Jesus and have, have joined church, were shocked when they came to church because they never actually experienced what a Christian church really was. They may have experienced some kind of formal or quasi-Christian experience sometime in their youth. Uh, but to come along to a, a congregation where the word is opened and we we come before God to listen to him and respond, where there are warm relationships and real love and care, and where there are people whose hearts have been changed to live for others and not for themselves, is a shock for many people. They've never yes. experienced it. And yes. and in that, in that sense, the beauty of organized Christianity, organized gospel Christianity uh, is a great commendation and apologetic for the gospel in a sense. Although it's, as you say, it's not the reason we want people to join uh, the, the church or join Christianity in order to get those benefits. But it does demonstrate and declare how great God is and that he changes people's lives. In every church I know, Tony, there's a meal roster for people who have got difficulties. You know, a new baby is born in the family and suddenly... All, all kinds of families are providing meals for this family so that in the first few weeks when they're struggling with the the, the baby at home, uh, they don't have to struggle with the foods and the prep, food preparation, etc. And I've met the non-Christian wider families who have been absolutely gobsmacked, completely astonished that there are so many people who are willing to stack up food in their in their their, their family's uh, refrigerator. And yet, when you talk to Christians about it, well, that's just what we do. That's just a nothing. It's, a, it's, it's, it's not a huge deal. But yet, it's not done in the community, except you know, one or two people. We're not talking one or two people. We're talking 30 people will be involved in doing. We're talking just a normality of our lives. That's perhaps a great point for us to conclude as well. Uh, and that is on a note of thankfulness. We, um, as Christians, often kind of adopt or get sort of sucked into the, the narratives of the world, that the church is a terrible place, that organized religion is a con and is corrupt. Uh, and we forget sometimes to give thanks for all those things we take for granted in the wonderful relationships and care and community that are our churches based on the gospel of Jesus. Absolutely, I agree with you. Well, why don't we finish in that way? Would you like to pray and give thanks for us? Sure. We do thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, for calling us into your family, that we can call you Father, and because of that, we know our brothers and sisters who also call you Father. And we thank you for that. And we thank you for the congregations we come from and that we're involved in now. And we do pray, Heavenly Father, that in our relationships with each other, we may bring glory and honour to your Son, for we can show the grace and mercy that he has given to us by his death for us, that we may serve one another in the same love that he and you have for us. We thank you and pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.